Hi everyone, this is Scott Shapiro and this is episode 13 of the Jurisprudence Course Podcast. And um, today we're going to be talking about the debate between exclusive and inclusive legal positivism. And now, um, I have been talking about this debate, um, though the episode today is slightly out of order. Um, I normally like to do it a little later on in the course. I'm doing it now because um, I am driving tomorrow, uh, driving my daughter to Ohio, um, and I had this idea that I would do the podcast um, on the road, the idea of like a jurisprudence road trip just seemed so kind of stupid um, that it seemed like a funny thing to do. Um, uh, and I thought I would talk about in, just rag on inclusive legal positivism. And then I thought, wait a second, but if I got into an accident, what? how, how in the world would I ever explain to people that I like got into an accident because I was doing a jurisprudence podcast on the road. I mean, it just seemed like um, a source of endless ridicule. Um, and so I decided that that was a bad idea, but I still want to talk about it. Um, and so I'm going to uh, spend today uh, three parts as, as usual. Um, first part, I'm going to lay out um, uh, Joseph Raz's famous argument from authority against inclusive legal positivism. Then I'm going to talk about um, the first argument that I gave against inclusive legal positivism um, uh, in part two and how I got into the business of, of uh, kind of debating the question about inclusive versus exclusive legal positivism um, uh, and um, how, in fact, I got my first publication. Um, and then part three, I'm going to give what I think is the kind of the real argument, the best argument that I think I can I can come up with um, as to why inclusive legal positivism is um, is dumb. Um, but and, and then I'm going to end with a cliffhanger. Okay. Um, so uh, so um, let's start. Okay. So as a, we the. Just to remind you, the debate between inclusive and exclusive legal positivism has to do with the possible content of the rule of recognition, with the possible kinds of criteria of legal validity there can be in any possible legal system. The inclusive legal positivist is inclusive. By the way, inclusive legal positivism used to be called soft positivism, and exclusive legal positivism used to be called hard positivism. And it's switched from soft positivism to inclusive legal positivism because like the soft positivists didn't want to be known as soft. Um, they want to be known as inclusive because you'd rather be better than, because like if you say, would you rather be soft or hard? Like, of course you want to be hard. Um, 
But if you say, do you want to be inclusive or exclusive? You say you want to be inclusive because inclusiveness is cool. So anyway, that's what's called now inclusive legal positivism. It's inclusive because it says any, you know, the criteria of legal validity can be, can be anything as long as that's what legal officials accept. You want to say that the properties that validate a, legal, uh, a rule as legal um, refer to their pedigree, their institutional source. As my grandma would say, goes into hate in good, good health. Go ahead, you know, do it. Um, and um, you want them to refer to the moral properties of the norm. You want to say like a, a norm is law and should be applied in cases that arise before you. Um, because they're morally appropriate, they're fair, they maximize you, uh, efficiency, um, they satisfy the categorical imperative, whatever you want, that can be part of the rule of recognition as well. Um, the exclusive legal positivist says, well, you know, inclusiveness is, is cool and everything like that, but, I mean, we're talking about law here, and, um, you know, law has certain kinds of... Um, constraints associated with it. And you can't allow a norm to become a legal norm just because it's morally appropriate. I mean, this is law. It needs to have some institutional source. It needs to have some pedigree associated with it. Um, and so this is known as, first was known as hard positivism. Um, and then it got, because it's hard, it's, uh, you know, the idea of a norm having an institutional source seems like as you could kick it, you know, you could see it, whereas morality seems soft and, you know, kind of insubstantial. Um, but it, it came to be known as exclusive legal positivism. Okay. Now, um, I make fun of inclusive legal positivism in part because like um, most legal theorists that are positivists are inclusive legal positivists, um, although there are more exclusive legal positivists now, um, generally, I mean, historically, inclusive legal positivism was the main form of legal positivism. Um, uh, why? Well, I think there's several reasons. First, um, it just seemed like inclusive legal positivism was descriptively superior. Um, so it's a well-known fact that constitutional Constitutional provisions of many legal systems are formulated in moral terms. Um, so if you take the, the Eighth Amendment to the United States Constitution, it prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. Cruelty, you know, it seems like a moral term. Um, in uh, Article One of the German Constitution states that human dignity shall be inviolable. And again, um, you know, human dignity is a moral term. Um, and so if you want to take these texts, at least at face value, um, it, it seems that you have to um, allow morality to be a condition of legality, at least if that is accepted among officials. Um, Hart himself was an inclusively positivist. Um, another reason why people became inclusively positivist is because they thought, you know, why not? I mean, there doesn't seem to be an argument against it. Um, so why would we put any constraints on what the criteria of legal validity could be? Um, and I think the third was that it was, it was just the easiest way initially to respond to Dworkin. You say, well, Dworkin, when you say that judges look to principles in hard cases, I mean, um, uh, that's just because rule recognition requires them to do so because not all um, rules of recognition have to refer to the 
institutional pedigree of a norm can validate norms based on their moral properties. Anyway, so those were the reasons. Um, then Joseph Raz came along. Um, and Joseph Raz is, I mean, the great, I mean, he's, you know, one of the three great, four great legal theorists of the 20th century, still alive, thank goodness, uh, 21st century. Um, and uh, in an article called Authority, Law, and Morality in 1985, he came up with um, an argument um, against inclusive legal positivism um, that goes as follows. Okay, and it's a bit involved, um, but I, so I'm going to try to go through it um, as carefully as I can. Um, think about Joseph Raz's work. It's extraordinarily um, precise and brilliant. Um, uh, you know, I'm not always sure I fully get all the moving pieces. Um, uh, just my own limitations. Um, but here is, um, here's the argument that he gave. So first thing he starts off with is he says, look, it's in the very nature of legal systems that it claims authority. That is, it's like a necessary feature of all legal systems that it claims authority, which is to say that all legal systems claim justified practical authority over a population. That is, the law claims that it has the moral authority to impose obligations on citizens to obey its directives. Okay, so we start off with the idea that legal systems necessarily claim legitimate authority. Okay. Um, next, Raz claims that if the law is to claim authority, if that claim is to be intelligible, a legal system must be the kind of thing that is capable of exercising authority. That is, to claim authority, it must be possible to have authority. So what Raz sets out to do is he sets out a theory of when does an authority have legitimate authority? When does a, the law have legitimate authority? Okay. Um, now, all laws are authorities in the, in, let me just clarify one thing. All laws are authorities in the sense that they're de facto authorities. That is, um, they are treated at least by um, other member, uh, other officials um, from the internal point of view as having um, uh, legitimate authority. Um, they may not be de jure um Authorities, they may not actually have the moral authority they claim to have. So, in one sense, all all legal systems claim legitimate authority, and when they're and because they're believed in that claim by at least a portion of the population, they're also de facto authorities. Okay, so let's just drill down on what it means to have legitimate authority or what are the conditions for having legitimate authority, okay? Now here, Raz develops what he calls the service conception of authority. And what, what Raz means by, by this is that uh, legal systems have authority, that is, they have legitimate authority, when they provide a service for us, 
Now, what is that service? The service is as follows. Each of us is constantly faced with the question, um, what should I do? And when we're answering this question, we appeal to reasons for doing one thing rather than another. Now, some of these reasons are self-interested, some of them are moral in nature. And what we do is we balance them. You know, on the one hand, I just keep my promise. On the other hand, I really want to go to see that movie, whatever. So we balance these things. We balance what Raz calls the first order reasons for action. And, you know, at least if we're rational, we resolve these questions um, by choosing the option which is supported by the balance of the best supported by the balance of first order reasons. Now, sometimes reason, rationality suggests that we should not attempt ourselves to directly engage in the balancing of first order reasons. Sometimes we should ignore the reasons we have. We have reason sometimes that is to exclude some of these first order reasons. Now, why would we ignore certain first order reasons? Well, we would ignore them if doing so would enable us to act on the balance of first order reasons better than if we attended to them directly. Sometimes, in other words, and this is what Raz says, we have second order reasons to exclude first order reasons. And Raz calls these exclusionary reasons. Exclusionary reasons. So one of them could be that you know, you're, if you considered all the reasons you have, you would get overwhelmed. So you make a plan in advance. Um, you decide in advance that you're going to do this because you know that when the time comes, you're, if you really thought about all the considerations, you would mess up the calculation, mess up your deliberations. So what you do is your decision acts as an exclusionary reason or a second order reason not to act on certain first order reasons. Um, now the second order reason, um, is a reason to exclude first order reasons because you think you're going to do, you're going to conform better to those first order reasons if you comply directly with the second order reason rather than complying directly with the first order reason. Okay. So it's like an indirect strategy. Okay. Instead of appealing to the underlying merits, you appeal to some other thing, which if you follow it, you'll do better conforming to the underlying first order reasons than if you were to directly try to comply with those reasons yourself. Okay. Now Raz argues that legitimate authorities provide us with exclusionary reasons. That is by complying with these, their directives and excluding the first order reasons for action will actually conform better to the reasons than we have. And then we tried to do this directly. Now this is the normal way in which authority is justified. And this is called the normal justification thesis. That is the service that authorities provide is that normally they give us directives that by following the directives, we would better conform to the reasons we have independent of those directives than if we try to conform to those reasons directly. Um, now the question becomes, when is it likely that authorities will provide this reason? When would their directives 
help us conform to the balance of first order reasons by complying with their directives instead. Well, according to Raz, there are two cases. You know, this is going on a bit long. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna I'm gonna break here and then um because there's so much to take in. Um I'm gonna, let me break here. Um and then I'm gonna pick up with this Raz's argument in the next um in the next part. Okay? See you soon. Okay, welcome back. Part two. Uh, this episode is going to be a smashing pumpkins episode, it seems, um, because we're smashing the bloated pumpkin head of inclusive legal positivism. Okay, um, we were in the middle of Raz's argument um, against inclusive legal positivism from authority, uh, just to rehearse the argument um, so far. The premise was all legal systems claim legitimate authority in order to have legitimate authority you must i'm sorry in order to claim legitimate authority you must possibly have legitimate authority so to know when you can claim legitimate authority you have to know when it's possible to have legitimate authority you have to know when it's possible to have legitimate authority only when you know when you actually have it so when do you actually have it you have it when your directives are second order exclusionary reasons. That is, they're reasons to exclude some of the reasons that apply to you independently of the directive, the first order reasons, just in case by following the directives, you will better able to conform to the first order reasons than if you try to do so directly. Now, when might those, when might it be the case that um, following the directives enables you to act um, uh, better according to the first order reasons. Um, two cases. One, um, there's cases of coordination. Sometimes we all have reasons to contribute to the realization of certain public goods like you know, security, uh, both internal and external, uh, education, school systems, um, healthcare, you know, clean water, clean air, environmental protection, all this type of stuff. So we have these first order reasons for providing these public goods. Um, but um, in order to coordinate our actions, it's very difficult to do so by ourselves. And if we tried to attend to the first order reasons that we have, um, we would probably not be able to produce these collective goods. Um, and this is where authorities come in. By following the directives of authorities, we'll be able to achieve our collective goals better than if we acted on the basis of the first order reasons. That is, by acting on the second order reasons of the directives, we'll be able to act, uh, we'll be able to conform to the first order reasons that apply to us independent of those directives. Okay, so coordination is one reason uh, to have uh, legitimate authorities. Um, second is uh, where the law can provide expertise. 
That is that they know how the first order reasons uh, apply to us better than we know how they apply to us. So take cases about like, you know, infectious diseases and quarantine. Um, the state has the resources that we don't have. They have labs, they have scientists, um, they have sensors and information um, uh, collection capabilities that we don't have. Um, and so if they say, go on a quarantine now, then we'll be able to um, ensure that we don't get infected or first order self-interested reasons and not infect others or first order other regarding reasons um, by listening to them. And then if we try to figure out on our own, um, geez, when um, should I go out? When should I stay in? Okay, what, what tests are reliable? What drugs are effective? Um, uh, so there, in, in cases of expertise, which wouldn't just apply in the case of public health, but involve um, you know questions, perhaps national security, um, uh, to do with um, environmental protection, things like that, that we there, the state can marshal its expertise so that we'll be able to conform to the first order reasons better by listening to them than by trying to do it ourselves. Okay. So we have these two basic cases where the law is, um, uh, likely or possibly legitimate, um, uh, cases of coronation, cases of expertise. I say possibly because RAS um, uh, allows that they may be more expert in certain situations, or they may claim to be expert in certain situations, but they may not be more expert in those situations than us. So actually, if we're more expert on, in certain cases than the law, then the law on those cases is not more expert than us, and then we don't have an obligation to obey them because we'll be able to conform to the first order reasons better by doing it ourselves than by listening to their directives, okay? So RAS allows that the law can claim that they're more expertise or that they're coordinating, but they, in fact, are not. RAS's only point is, is that um, there are these cases where the law's claim could actually be satisfied, um, and that's what it's claiming when it claims legitimate authority. It's claiming that its directives enable us to conform to the reasons that apply to us independent of their directives by listening to their directives than by trying to do it ourselves. Okay? Now, here's a crucial step in Raz's authority argument against inclusive positivism. Authoritative directives, if they're to serve their role, it's necessary that the identification and interpretation of their content cannot depend on the first order reasons that they're meant to exclude and replace, okay? Because after all, right, I mean, the point of the directive is to exclude and replace first order reasons. If the way we're to identify those directives themselves is by consideration of the first order reasons they're meant to exclude and replace, then the directives aren't serving any function. But that's precisely what inclusive legal positivism is allowing subjects of authority to do. 
the inclusive legal positivist says, you know, the criteria of legal validity could be questions about, let's say, the moral fairness of a norm. If the norm is unfair, then don't follow it. But the whole point of a legal directive is to replace those very reasons and exclude them from your deliberation. I mean, the question about whether certain behavior is fair or not is a first order reason for action. The law is supposed to consider those reasons, issue a directive, which, when legitimate, excludes those first order reasons and replaces them. But the inclusive legal positivist is saying, no, 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 you can actually consider those first order reasons for action when you decide whether that is an authoritative directive or not. But that undoes the very idea of having the authoritative directive. The authoritative directive can never fulfill its function if it allow if in order to know if it's an authoritative directive, we have to consider the very factors that the directive is meant to replace and whose function renders that authoritative directive legitimate in the first place. I mean, for fuck's sake, the whole idea of why authorities get to tell us what to do is because they claim that they're better at it than we are. But if in order to even know what the directive is, you had to answer the question that the, direct, that the authority is claiming to answer, then the whole purpose of having legitimate authorities evaporates. Okay? So this is, Raz, is a very powerful argument against inclusive legal positivism based on this theory of authority. Now, um, there has been so much ink spilled on this um, argument, I'm not going to go through all the gajillion arguments against it. Um, let me mention my two realms with it. Um, first, it, it notice that what it does is it uh, links together two things that you wouldn't have thought a positivist would have linked. That is, Raz's argument from authority is links the question, the conceptual question of what law is and what it could be with the moral question of when it's legitimate, right? Because what it says is on the conceptual side, it says in order to, uh, it, it says that all law necessarily claims legitimate authority and to have, to claim legitimate authority, you must um, possibly be able to have it. That's on the conceptual side. And then on the moral side, he gives you a theory of legitimate authority. That is a moral political theory of when the law has, generates moral obligation to obey. And he's linking the two by saying that in order to claim legitimate authority, you must possibly have it, and this is what it means to have legitimate authority. So therefore, in order to know what the law is conceptually, you have to know when it's justified. 
Now, this is a funny, funny, funny thing methodologically for a positivist to do, to say that the nature of law depends on a substantive political theory about when it's justified. That is, if you're doing jurisprudence, analytical jurisprudence, you have to also do political philosophy. I mean, this sounds much more like Dworkin than something that like Hart ever argued, right? I mean, this sounds a lot like a Dworkinian analysis. Um, and so, um, me no like that. Um, the second uh, problem that I have with it, which is that Raz claims that to claim legitimate authority, you must possibly have it, but that would mean that anarchism is an is is not just a false political theory, but it's an incoherent conceptual theory. Um, because the anarchist says, well, of course, the law is claiming authority; um, it just doesn't have it. Um, but according to Raz, that that you can't say that. If you say that the law claims authority, must possibly have it. But the anarchist is saying you can't possibly have it because the conditions for legitimate authority obtaining can never take place. So that's another reason why I don't accept the argument. Um, uh, like I said, there are so many uh, uh, arguments against or in favor of this argument of Raz's. I won't go into it um, just because we couldn't possibly um, uh, do it justice, but just to know that this is a whole industry. Um, and, um, you know, uh, many, many dissertations have been written about it. Um, you know what? I am going to uh, take a break, and then I'm going to move on to my argument against inclusive legal positivism. Um, be back in a minute. Okay, part three. You know, I am going, this, it, it turns out that this episode is going to have two parts because there's no way I'm going to be able to get through other arguments against inclusive legal positivism. Um, uh, it turns out that Raz's argument uh, from authority took 30 minutes and I don't want to actually um, make any episode too long. So um, I'll pick up on this next week. Two, um, I know it'll be very hard to wait a whole week to hear um, more arguments against inclusive legal positivists. Um, but I'm sorry. Um, let me let me um, talk right now about the first argument that I made against inclusive legal positivism. It's kind of like 
my big break um, in the profession. Let me also just kind of give you a sense of like how how things were done uh, when I got into the profession. Um, it's kind of funny. Uh, the, my 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 involvement in the debate between inclusive and exclusive like positivism um, happened um, in a very um, uh, random way. Um, so I did my uh, dissertation, uh, not on positivism and nature of law or anything like that. Um, I did it on, uh, the, my dissertation was called Rules and Practical Reasoning, and I was interested in why rules are reasons. That is, it seems like rules are either irrelevant to practical reasoning or irrational to follow, because either the rule gives you the answer that you should have um, uh, done anyway, in which case the fact that the rule tells you to do it, it makes it irrelevant that the rule told you to do it. So the rule seems, in those kind of cases, irrelevant to practical reasoning. Or the rule gives you a um, gives you the wrong answer, in which case you shouldn't follow it. So in that case, it's irrational to follow the rule. So either listening to rules are, is irrelevant or irrational. Anyway, that was what I worked on. And so um, as a legal philosopher, um, he now teaches at William Mary, Brian Bix, um, and Brian used to call me up and we would talk. Um, he was a Quinnipiac at the time. We would talk about jurisprudence, we talked about the profession, talked about you know careers, things like that. And at one point he told me he was putting together a festriff, you know, kind of a series of essays, volume um, uh, for Jules Coleman. And I, uh, and he asked me, you know, would I want to take a chapter of my dissertation and include it in the collection, which is incredibly nice of him. Um, he said that it would help me on the market. I could put it on my FAR form, on my faculty form for the AALS to get a job. It would help me because I didn't have any uh, publications at the time. So it was, it was like, at the time, you didn't need publications um, to get a job. Um, you had to have some writing sample that you showed to committees, but you didn't have to have publications, not like, like, like nowadays, but he thought, you know, if you had a publication, it would look good. Um, and it was again, really nice, but I said to him, look, I don't have any, I, I didn't write about anything that Jules Coleman wrote about anywhere. He wrote about tort theory. He wrote about, he was a very, um, prominent, inclusive legal positivist, um, and, but I didn't write about any of these things. He says, don't worry, just take a chapter of yours and tack something on at the beginning of the chapter about Coleman's work or at the end having to do with the work. Um, it doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be really seamless. Um, and then include it. So I was like, okay, uh, let me figure it out. So, um, I thought to myself, well, if you took the view about rule following that I had, would that be inconsistent with inclusive legal positivism? And I thought, actually, it would be. It would turn out that inclusive legal positivism um, would make it that certain rules couldn't, certain legal rules couldn't guide conduct, um, uh, only pedigreed rules of recognition would enable legal rules to guide your conduct in the right way. 
And so I wrote it up. Um, and um, it was just a, a couple of paragraphs that I put at the end of the essay that got put in, included in the Festschrift. And then um, Jules Coleman said, that, you know, this is really interesting. You should write it up. And I said, I didn't really want to write it up. I was like, finish working on the topic. And he said, no, 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 you really should write it up. So I wrote this article called On Heart's Way Out, which set out the argument in more detail. Um, and I was like, okay, I forget. I don't want to work on it anymore. And then all of a sudden, like within a month, four articles were written attacking my article, which I was really incredibly freaked out by because I was like just starting and written an article and published it in legal theory and then all of a sudden got attacked by four different people. And Jules said to me, no, no, you have to write an article responding. He's like, I don't want to write an article responding to it. He's like, no, when you're young, you have to do that. And by the way, this is like an importance of having people explain this stuff to you. Like, so I wrote this article responding. And so like I wrote three articles on inclusive, inclusive, uh, inclusive ex versus exclusively positivism. I didn't want to do any of it, um, but it became a thing. And then, it was like an article that got attention. And so, um, well, anyway, that's what happened with me. Um, and um, uh, let, me, let me go through, en enough of my yak, let me, let me go through the, the argument. Um, uh, and, and this was the argument. I thought, I started for this idea that, um, you know, I've mentioned this before. We talked about Hart's concept of law. You know, for positivists, you think that the function of law is to guide conduct. Um, and therefore, positivists need to show that anything that they call, call, call law must be capable of guiding conduct. Okay? And because a norm cannot guide conduct unless it makes a practical difference to your reasoning, law must be capable of making differences to our practical reasoning. I called this the practical difference thesis. The idea was that um, all rules must make a difference to our practical reasoning, and since law is supposed to guide conduct, law has to make a difference to our practical reasoning. What, what was the practical difference thesis exactly? Well, it basically said that um, in order for a rule to guide conduct, it has to motivate you to act in a way that you might not have acted had you not appealed to the rule. Okay, so it has to make some difference to your motivation, at least in some instance, by appealing to it. The idea was is that like if you're if you appealed to the rule and you're not motivated to act any differently than if you didn't appeal to the rule, then the rule's not making any difference to your practical reasoning. That was the idea. And so, therefore, if you thought that the function of law is to guide conduct, you had to think that law what must be capable of making a practical difference, that there's at least some situation in which, by appealing to the law, you were motivated to act differently than if you hadn't appealed to the law. Okay? So, I, I called that the practical difference thesis, and I thought that all positivists had to accept the practical difference thesis. And I thought it was like a very minimal constraint. Um, you can't, I mean, you can't like really say that the law is guiding your conduct if appealing to it never makes any difference to how you act and how you're motivated to act. Um, so that was the idea. Um, um, and so what, 
what 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 I what I tried to what I tried to show um, in these articles um, uh, that moral principles that lack pedigrees that lack institutional sources can't make practical differences to anybody who's following them. That is, if a judge is being guided by an inclusive rule of recognition, the moral principles supposedly validated by it can't make a practical difference. And here was the argument. And the argument I thought is very simple. Let's say the judge in Riggs versus Palmer is guided by a rule of recognition which tells judges to appeal to principles of morality in order to resolve hard cases, okay? And let's say it's a principle of morality that no man should profit from his own wrongs and there are no other applicable moral principles and therefore the right thing to do morally speaking is to invalidate the bequest. Now, my argument was that the principle that no person should profit from his own wrong can't make a practical difference if the inclusive rule of recognition makes a practical difference. So if the judge is following the inclusive rule of recognition and it makes a practical difference, the moral principle validated by it can't make a practical difference. Okay? Um, how? Well, to see whether a given primary norm makes a practical difference, I suggested that we imagine a situation where a judge is guided by the inclusive rule of recognition, but not by the primary norm itself, and see whether the judge would act any differently. So let's assume, therefore, that the judge, pursuant to the inclusive rule of recognition, consults um, a moral philosopher to determine what justice requires. Well, he'll end up invalidating the will anyway, because the moral philosopher will tell him that the principle's morality require that he invalidate the bequest. So therefore, the principle of morality doesn't make any practical difference to the judge if the rule of recognition does. Why? Because the rule of recognition is telling them to follow morality. So regardless of whether he follows the actual principle of morality, he's going to act in the same way that if he followed the principle of morality itself. So it turns out that if all laws must make practical differences, these moral principles can't be laws because if you're following the inclusive rule of recognition, which tells you do as morality requires, then regardless of whether you actually appeal to the moral principle itself, you're going to do what morality requires. And so the moral principle is not making any practical difference. But notice the same is not true for exclusive rules of recognition and norms which have pedigrees. So let's assume that the New York State Legislature passes a law which says that, I don't know, no red-headed beneficiaries who murder a testator will collect under the will. Now, I claim that this law does make a practical difference. Now, how do we know this? Let's imagine that the judge is not guided by this rule. Now, how, would, would he still act the same way if he was guided by it? Well, not if the law is repealed he'll apply only those laws that are passed by the legislature, which will not include that law. In any case involving a red-headed beneficiary, he'll uphold the bequest. Therefore, the law passed does make a practical difference because if it was repealed, legal officials might act differently. Now, the reason this trick doesn't work for moral principles that lack pedigrees is because they can't be repealed. 
We can't imagine a situation where a judge is committed to acting in accordance with the principles of morality and doesn't conform to, the, to moral principles. But we can imagine a situation where someone is committed to acting in accordance with the laws passed by the legislature, but doesn't conform to some of them. That is when the set of the laws passed by the legislature changes through repeal. So the exclusive rule of recognition can guide conduct and the rules validated by it can also guide conduct because the rules validated by it make a practical difference because we can imagine situations in which you don't appeal to them, you would act differently. The, one of those situations are when those rules are repealed. You're still acting according to the exclusive rule of recognition, but you're no longer acting in accordance with the repealed law. But you can't imagine the same thing about an inclusive rule of recognition. Why? Because you can't repeal morality. You're stuck with it. It can't go in and out of existence. And so inclusive rules of recognition, if you follow them, you can't be following, you can't be guided by the rules validated by them because they can't be repealed. And so therefore, they don't make a practical difference if the, rule, if the inclusive rule of recognition makes a practical difference. Anyway, that was the argument. Um, and um, it was, I, I mean, you know, I don't know if, whether it's a good argument or not. I mean, it got me tenure. Um, so that, so in that sense, it was a good argument. Um, one funny thing, I'll, 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 I'll finish with this. So I, I, I tweeted this out at, at one point um, and it got, it, it, it went viral. Um, so if you heard it, um, uh, if you read it, um, this will be an old story to you. But um, when I wrote On Heart's Way Out and I laid out this argument in detail, um, uh, like I said, four articles were written in response and then I was supposed to um, write a reply argument to these critiques of my argument. Um, and um, I was totally freaked out. And um, these articles came in at the end of the semester. And then I had the whole summer to write my reply. And I was really, really um, anxious about it. Um, I thought all the arguments in the um, in those articles, I could answer, but there was one argument that nobody had made, but I felt like I couldn't answer, and I somehow became completely obsessed with being able to answer this objection, even though nobody had made it, um, and. I was just dwelling on it the whole summer. And I remember m my wife and I were driving back from Nova Scotia where we had spent the summer. And I was so upset about it. Um, and since I, at the end of the summer, I had to come back and write the reply because that's when it was due. Um, it took us 24 hours to, to, to drive back because you take a ferry and everything like that. I, I asked my wife not talk, to talk to me the entire way. Um, we are still talk about what an asshole I was about that. Um, but I was just so upset and so uh, concerned that I couldn't answer this question. So I, 
the end of the story is that um, I got back and I said to my wife, you know, um, she said, were you able to answer the objection? And I was like, no. And, and I said, well, you know, the thing is, you know, nobody made this objection. Do you think it's okay if I not respond to it in the reply? And she's like, you idiot, you, you, you're worried about an objection nobody made? Just reply to the objections that were made and you'll figure it out some other day. And I said, do you think that's an okay thing to do? And she said, oh, absolutely. You're not, you're not obligated to answer every conceivable objection. You know, maybe you'll figure it out some other time. Just answer the objections that were made. I thought, oh my God, that's a big relief. Five minutes later, I figured it out. And what does that show? First of all, it shows that I married the right person. That's the first thing it showed. Second thing, and, but it also showed my wife didn't. Um, but the, the second thing is it shows the, 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 how toxic anxiety is for creativity. You know, I was so anxious about being able to answer an objection, I couldn't see my way through it. And as soon as I was given permission not to be anxious about the issue anymore, I figured out what it was um, and actually um, responded to it in the reply article, even though nobody had made it. Um, anyway, I hope you enjoy this. I'm going to continue this next week um, with a better argument against inclusive legal positivism. Um, but um, I hope uh, everyone stays happy and um, healthy um, and um, see you next week. Bye. Um, oh, wait. I got to gotta take us out with, with, uh, with some song so let's let's um let's finish with uh with with uh with muzzle Thank you.